Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We made this. Welcome back everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. And I'm Sean Wilson. And this week, after the sad news of Ennio Morricone's passing at the age of 91, we're bringing you a celebration of the work of arguably one of the greatest film composers in cinematic history. And this was a slight change from our plan this week, Sean. We were originally going to record for um, the coming week an episode all about high school movies and, you know, to celebrate the students breaking up, if they are sort of breaking up this year and how it's all working. But then we had the sad news about Ennio Morricone's passing uh, out of nowhere. And it just seemed right, I think, for us to change our plan a little bit and talk about a composer that we featured not, you know, just recently, but briefly. We talked about Once Upon a Time in the West in our last episode and has featured before in our discussions. And he's such a titan of the film music world. We had to sort of pay tribute to one of the absolute masters of this form. Yeah, I think, put simply, Ennio Morricone was one of the greatest artists the world has ever known in any medium, you know, be it um, painting, music, cinema, books. He was astonishing, and certainly... If you think of him in terms of film music, I mean, he was—he's—I mean, he's—he's he's up there with um, Bach, Beethoven, Mahler, <laughs> Brahms, mm. and I, I don't—I don't say that lightly. Uh, the his extraordinary talent and the astonishing outputs that he maintained right up until his death was really, really, really something. And I don't think there's a film fan on earth who won't have been influenced by Ennio Morricone in one form or another. He was one of those rare artists whose his work crossed boundaries. And um, although film music is often accused of being quite niche, even by classical purists often look down on film music, Morricone's abilities were so extraordinary that he could cross he could cross that niche boundary and he could reach out to people who wouldn't otherwise be interested in this medium. And certainly if you think of the theme for the good, the bad and the ugly, for instance, you know, you'd one need not be a fan of film music to know what that is within a few bars of it starting that, 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 that's, that's, it's a Titanic talent. He really, he really was, let's say is, he really was. Uh, in, and we've chosen 10 tracks that we've, you know, five each and we've sort of picked from various different things. I mean, Morricone's career was vast, covering a, a massive range of time and, you know, all kinds of different albums and all for all kinds of different people from different countries. You would need 
a entire series of podcasts to discuss everything that he ever did. So we've whittled down to what we would say is five of our favourite tracks, not necessarily albums, but tracks that we're going to discuss one by one as we go on. But before we do, why don't we just give a bit of context to the man in his career, Sean? I mean, he's, like we say, he's go, he goes back 50, 60 years. You know, he was 91 when he died. He has such a span of work. And I, I suppose, for, for people who aren't sure, where did it all begin? And I, I suppose the key sort of starting point for many people's minds would be the, the Sergio Leone Western trilogy. But there is more to his backstory than just those. Yeah, there is. And in, in, in Morricone's own words, he, he was an experimental musician who um, happened to break into films. That's how he described himself. And he did have, I mean, his the, 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 um, autobiography is, is incredibly um, complex and nuanced and multifaceted, as complex and nuanced and multifaceted as the scores that he would go on to write. But yeah, Born in Rome um, showed a prodigious talent for composition from a from a young age uh, was encouraged by his father to uh, to read music he entered the national academy of saint cecilia uh, he was tutored under Goffredo Petra- Petrazzi, to whom he would later dedicate uh, concert uh, pieces. So clearly, this was this was kind of an ingrained ability from a very very young age, from when he was from when he was a boy, and then he then he then um, started to compose um, various various pieces. He broke into um, radio dramas. Um, he he became established as a jazz artist. I think that's really really important by the. The, the rhythms of jazz, that kind of improvisational, slightly off kilter, slightly um, quirky feel is very, very important because that is what was going to inform the tone, particularly of the Spaghetti Western scores, uh, which he then ultimately broke into with his old school friend Sergio Leone. They'd been to school together. They were simpatico with each other. And it's really remarkable how a director and a composer clearly were singing off the same hymn sheet. And you don't get examples in cinema of how things are so perfectly aligned as they were in the dollars trilogy because you have sergio leone thought operatically with the visuals and morricone absolutely got that through the music but the interesting thing is i mean because of budgetary constraints obviously the dollars trilogy was made for each of those movies was made for very very little money because um one would think that obviously clint eastwood wasn't a, a big movie star by that point he'd done like rawhide but clearly clint eastwood wasn't in a position to demand a huge amount of money so they were made for low costs which meant that morricone had to draw on all of that prior experience in jazz he had to draw on that instinctive compositional skill that he'd had since he was a young child in order to get around the budgetary constraints and hence what you got in a fistful of dollars and then later for a few dollars more in the good the bad and the ugly was a really groundbreaking uh, mixture of sounds that had not been heard in the in the genre before. One has to think that up until the 1960s, the um, the genre was dominated by the sounds of like Alfred Newman, Max Steiner, Jerome Ross, uh, Elmer Bernstein with with the Magnificent Seven. Then Morricone came along and threw in guitars, jaw harp. Uh, grunting male choir, mariachi trumpet, through all these disparate elements together. Again, in that, in that, obviously, in the way that jazz had taught him that to, to almost a kind of improvised sound. Although obviously, as you hear it, it's obviously very, very well considered. But the idea of throwing all these disparate elements together clearly is is very unpredictable. No one could have known it would have worked as well as it did, and history was made. And that is where. <laughs> 
you know, Morricone was thence propelled to become one of the greatest musicians of, of all time. It's it's remarkable. I mean, that's a really nice summary, and it it, it just shows the 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 influence he had and the you know the the reach he had as a as a composer as somebody who came in with all these you know established musical styles and and we've talked about this before haven't we but this is something you often find with the truly great composers isn't that they have groundings in other areas before they come into actually scoring films and i think that's why you don't get many who are quite at morricone's level I would say. I mean, you know, you've compared him to some of the great classical masters in in history, music history, not just beyond film history. But I think we're going to find, aren't we, as more and more of the Morricones and the John Williams and 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 these guys, you know, after Jerry Goldsmith, who we've talked about before, Basil Polidoris, after these guys die, we're going to find, I think, more and more as we go into the 21st century, that film composers of this level are considered alongside the the great masters of classical music because in, I mean in the past it may not have been so might it it might have been more that they are considered film composers are considered something a little bit more disposable but I think that culture has absolutely changed now and you, you know when you get the reaction to you know Morricone's death which is all over all over the internet you know there was a hell of a lot of responses straight away of you know real sadness from all quarters people who you know, may not have necessarily known a lot about him, but knew aspects of his music. In fact, there was the uh, a lot of IF thrown at the Washington Post, wasn't there, for their tweet? I don't know if you saw this about I how did, yeah. They uh, they said, you know, any Morricone composer of the music dead. And everyone was like, what? Like, are you serious? Like, that, this, you know, that's so throwaway. That's not... Yes, okay, everybody knows that tune from The Good and Bad and the Ugly, but it's not... The, the, the sum of a man you know there is far more to this man than just one thing and I think that's it isn't it he the passing of someone like Morricone continues that progress for film composing and this is a truly recognized medium alongside some of the great classical opera all that kind of stuff through history well, he he was one of a kind. He Morricone single-handedly advanced the language of music, not just film music, but the language of music. Full stop. That is that is how much of a of a titan he was. And yeah, to to go back to that Washington Post tweet. Yeah, not only was it trite and somewhat tasteless, it's also very very reductionist as well because it implies that all Morricone was famous for was the theme for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Morricone famously uh, it was famously a bit of a tetchy character from what i've read uh, and there's a there's a brilliant tribute from Hans zimmer um online which you could see in which he does describe morricone as a brilliant man but a bit of a hard taskmaster the the the, the western side of morricone occupied i believe no more than 30 to 40 scores in a career that spanned over 400 of them Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Uh, some sources say that it reaches 500, which is just a jaw-dropping amount of work. He was remarkably prolific, even right up until his twilight years. And it's not it's not right to describe him as the spaghetti western composer because those scores occupied at best a tenth of his overall career. They are astonishing scores, and they rewrote the language of music in cinema. Of course, they did. And there are probably count within within that spaghetti western canon. There are probably countless ones that I haven't even heard of. In preparation for this podcast, I listened to a couple that I hadn't heard before, and I was like blimey this is just his his ability to reinvent himself without necessarily repeating himself was really extraordinary i was talking to um the empire critic and journalist uh, amon warman who's a friend of this podcast we've had him on um on the podcast before and hopefully we'll get him on again where he said that um it's very very rare for a, a composer to be so identifiable within a few bars of music and yet to have that composer not repeat themselves so you would know that it was a Morricone score literally within a few seconds of it starting. And yet he wasn't, for example, a James Horner. Like he didn't, Morricone wasn't in the habit of lifting entire passages from his own work or from other people's works and dropping them in. Not that I want to rag on James Horner because he is one of my favourite film composers, but Morricone didn't do that. I mean, there are tonal similarities between Morricone's scores uh you know variously elegiac dissonant tense soaring sweeping whatever there are there are tonal similarities between his works but he never never ever copied himself uh certainly not in the scores that i've heard anyway and that's that's another remarkable talent thing morricone always pushed himself as as zimmer said you know he was very 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 focused very driven i mean clearly anybody who sort of broke into music as early as Morricone did and kind of was was developing various concert pieces and orchestral pieces at a young age clearly it was a prodigious talent that was that was kind of inherent within him at a very early age and cinema was the ideal output for that yeah it all came together at the right time didn't it for you know some some amazing music um going through absolute decades to come so let's talk about our, our 10 then because as i say we've picked these 10 tracks that hopefully reflect a fairly wide selection of his work from various different um sources and decades and and things like that and i think thing a, me- a measure of recognizable tracks from some albums and also ones that perhaps people may not be as familiar with and I think we didn't a Morricone episode a couple of years ago, Sean, on our previous incarnation of this show. And I think we talked about one or two of these back then, um, but that those those uh, episodes are lost to the ages now. So I know for a fact there are tracks on this that we didn't talk about last time. So it's going to be exciting to pick through these and to see some of the variations in in the kind of music that he's done. So I thought we'd start with my first one, and I thought we'd start with the with the one we we mentioned just briefly, the one that he is for people who are more casual, maybe about cinema and about film music. Probably the the track that he is most well known for, on the face of it, which is the main theme from The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, the Sergio Leone film from 1966, the first in the Dollars trilogy, probably the probably one of, if not the most well known Western 
well, certainly spaghetti western in cinema history. Clint Eastwood, the man with no name, uh, and and the classic whistling, you know, kind of tune. Now this is, I mean, it's legendary along the level of certain of the things that we've talked about in this podcast before: the Superman theme, the Indiana Jones theme, the James Bond theme. This is one of those one of those tracks from a particularly brilliant album that transcends traditional film music in terms of popular culture. I think this is one that goes beyond. This is one that people will hum. And even if they don't know all the, necessarily the name of the composer, even if they don't know much about the movie itself, they will know this. And I think that is another example of a composer who has gone beyond what film composers traditionally do. To have a track, have a piece of music that is so signature to a particular time, to a particular place, and well-known amongst society as a whole. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'd put it up there with, you mentioned the film music classics there, I'd put it up there with the likes of Beethoven's Ninth, Ode to Joy. Pretty much, one need not have a grounding in Beethoven to know what Ode to Joy is. You play a few notes of Ode to Joy, you know exactly what that is, regardless of how familiar you are with the rest of Beethoven's canon. I'd say The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is up there with that easily, and frankly, you don't get higher praise than that. I mean, it's interesting that a lot of Morricone's Western music was covered by pop artists throughout the um, the 1960s. I believe it was Hugh or Hugo Montenegro covered the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And again, to have a, a, to have pop artists covering something that is inherently classical shows how much the music broke out into the into the mainstream. The fact that someone felt the need to do that showed that Morricone's instrumental and harmonic choices and his rhythmic choices clearly had popular appeal beyond the perceived um, limitations of, of classical music, which was amazing. I mean, I think, yeah, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is magnificent. You're right. The album is really well put together. There isn't a wasted note. There isn't a wasted track. Uh, it covers a host of different styles. And I think, again, it's it's important to reinforce that you know, the main theme is very, very famous and deservedly so. There is so much more going on in this score than the main theme. And anyone listening to this, I would encourage them to look beyond the main theme and actually play the entire album because there are so many highlights. I mean, clearly you have the the um, Ecstasy of Gold track, which allows me to introduce the soprano vocalist, um, Edda Delorso, who will be referring to a lot throughout this podcast, the extraordinary voice of Edda Delorso with, with whom Morricone worked repeatedly. You also have the track "The Carriage of the The Carriage of the Spirits" with uh, Del Orso's voice, um, the soaring choir. You have the um, the the famous famously tense bit of Spanish music where Lee Van Cleef as as the um, as the bad turns up at the beginning, and you have this sense of broiling menace. Uh, which is just brilliantly well done. And then you have the, um, because The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is a Civil War story and the fact that the three characters, their fates end up intersecting with the soldiers in the Civil War in their quest for gold. You have the um, the story of the soldier theme, which is actually performed within the context of the film itself. So it's a piece of Morricone music that's heard being performed within the film, but it also exists without, outside the world of the film. So it's like diegetic, non-diegetic there's so much going on in this score. I mean, it's no wonder it's as well regarded as it is. And I watched the um, the final showdown, the final duel, the trio um, scene and track with the three of them. And as um, the space 
the space between the characters closes in. So you go from these extreme long shots to the extreme close-ups on the faces and the music increases in operatic intensity as the focus of the camera narrows. And it's just magnificently done. It What it says, it, what the music is saying is that faces are their own kind of operatic landscapes. It's so brilliant. And that is that is such a cliche. I mean, Morricone invented those cliches and I think it's very easy to take for granted now because everyone ripped that off. You know, everyone ripped off that approach to music in the years since, and they ripped off the, the the visual the visual language as well. I think it's important to go back to where it all started. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's a key it's a key point for Morricone's career, I guess. You know, in terms of becoming more of a uh, you know of a name in film composing, and particularly in the United States. And as you say, it was a hit. The soundtrack, the actual album to the soundtrack, was on the charts for more than a year. Um, it got to number four on the Billboard pop album chart, as you say. The main theme was a hit in 1968, and and that again is something that doesn't always happen, you know, especially especially for this kind of music. And I think it's you know it's 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 fantastic that it it resonated and it struck such a chord because it is a brilliant album, absolutely. And we are going to re- return to it briefly towards the end of this podcast because one of my other choices is from this album, and I think it's it's in fact my favourite piece i think my favorite piece of morricone music actually i have to say but we we will come to that towards the end but we're going to move into slightly different territory now with the next choice because you've gone for uh, we're jumping ahead a couple of decades now you've gone for uh, falls from the mission the mission is the the roland joffe film uh, from 1986 very famous about uh, jesuit missionaries in in latin america who are attempting to preach the word of God to the indigenous uh, cultures. So it's clearly, the subject matter would clearly be catnip to any composer, but particularly someone uh, like Morricone, who always had a, an extraordinary sense of divinity and spirituality in this movie. This this story is the perfect outlet for Morricone to unleash that side of him. And it resulted in arguably one of the most sort of toweringly beautiful um, film scores ever composed it was remarkably successful one of the best-selling film scores of all time uh, very 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 famous because of the largely because of the track that i haven't selected which was gabriel's oboe uh which was a staple of classical music albums the world over i think i mean i suppose it's important to say that well, in, in terms of when I first heard Morricone was probably, well, through my dad, because my dad introduced me to the Spaghetti Westerns when I was probably like 11, 12 years old. And although I, although I, I don't remember taking the films in, the music clearly imprinted on me. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. And 
I think it's important to remember that throughout the 1990s into the early 2000s, there were loads and loads of, of chill-out albums that were released like repeatedly. They, they were all over the place. My dad always used to collect those. He used to buy them. And Marconi was always on those, uh, which is another sign of how remarkable he was. He could cross over into the mainstream populist sphere and the score for the mission was always on those albums, particularly Gabriel's oboe, which is an interesting story. I'll look this up. So Jeremy Irons plays the character of Gabriel in the movie and he performs the oboe. Well, he mimes playing the oboe in the um, in the film and then that's obviously overdubbed with the music. Apparently, Morricone was inspired to come up with the notes for the theme by Jeremy Irons' finger placements as he was miming playing the instrument on, on the set which is um it, it resulted in in a gorgeous theme it's very very famous i chose the track falls uh which is the opening track because i think it might be even more beautiful and it introduces what is ostensibly the main theme uh which goes from pan pipes and pan pipes were often used in Morricone's scores we'll go in we're probably going to mention that again at some point into this soaring string elegy that's speaks of the landscapes and it speaks of the kind of divine quest of of the characters i mean morricone had a a really again i've used this word a lot astonishing ability to leap beyond the frame and to suggest something genuinely transcendent and genuinely awe-inspiring again it's almost like he was touched by divinity himself uh, through his music and falls is just brilliant i mean i defy anyone to listen to the string progressions in this and not be moved by it it's among several jaw-dropping pieces in the in the score yeah uh, it's it's a if you if you're talking accomplishments in film music and accomplishments in morricone's career this this is up there definitely yeah it's gorgeous isn't it absolutely gorgeous uh score and there was some controversy because it was nominated for an Oscar, but it didn't win that year. Um, in 1987, I think it would have, or 1986. And uh, it was a, a, it lost to a film called Round Midnight, uh, which was scored by Herbie Hancock, the uh, jazz musician. And, and Round Midnight is a film by a guy called Bertrand Tavernier, which from the mid-80s, which is not f- f- American-French musical drama, which I'd never heard of until literally looking at it now. So it's not like passed through into into the law of cinema and it was uh, a, he- a hell of a category that year including James Horner's score for Aliens, Jerry Goldsmith's score for Hoosiers uh, and then Morricone's score for The Mission uh, and he said, apparently Morricone said, because uh, he finally won an Oscar for The Hateful Eight in 2015 he said in an interview, I definitely felt I should have won for The Mission especially when you consider that the Oscar winner that year was Ray Midnight which was not an original score it had a very good arrangement by Herbie Hancock, but it used existing pieces. So there could be no comparison with the mission. There was a theft! <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can just imagine the kind of Italian inflection. Yeah. Can't you? <laughs> the there was a like, theft! Yeah. Very, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And he's, he's, I mean, you know, it's a hell of a, a list of, of films. And uh, I think a lot of people would, would say that Aliens is another classic uh, score. But how can you not give this to the mission? You know, I mean, even even with those scores around it, this is just something sublime. So, I mean, again, another example of how, you know, the Oscars don't necessarily always recognise absolute masterpiece film scores when they should. 
No, I mean the I mean the Oscars know bugger all about music anyway. You know, they're, 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 they're <laughs> just, absolutely... just say it like it is, there, Sean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm completely with Morricone on that. I mean, it's it's remarkable to think that he he didn't win an Oscar until the Hate Flight. He did get an honorary Oscar in 2007, I believe. But I believe he was only actually outside of the Hate Flight. I believe he was only nominated about another what six times, which That's is mad. just. It's just extraordinary. You think that um, the people that don't have Oscars... So Ennio Morricone didn't get an Oscar. So just just to put this in context, Gwyneth Paltrow got an Oscar before Ennio Morricone did. I mean, how does that... <laughs> how, 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 how does that work? I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow had done some very, very fine work. But really? Like just, I mean, yeah. I mean, I know it's kind of like apples and oranges, isn't it? But it's when you, I suppose, when you put it like that, you know, without wanting to be too mean towards Gwyneth Paltrow, but but seriously, like, I know you think, well, how, yeah, how does that, <laughs> how does that even work? I mean, it, it, for a lot of people, it might be one of his favourite pieces of work. I think, and and I, I mean, you can understand why. It's just, it's just stunning, absolutely stunning from start to finish. So for my next piece i've gone for something that is maybe a little bit more experimental than the two that we've previously featured here in a way i'm not saying better but definitely more definitely along different lines i've gone for a silhouette of doom by morricone which was featured on the score and was sort of repopularized that's where i first heard it in the score for kill bill volume two from Tarantino and obviously we just mentioned The Hateful Eight which he won the Oscar for because Tarantino managed to convince him to come and actually score The Hateful Eight after there'd been some tension I think previously about Tarantino using Morricone's score tracks from Morricone's films in in some of his uh, some of his work previously some of his films I think there'd been so I remember I seem to remember there being tension there that Morricone was moaning about this and then and then Tarantino managed to get him involved but a silhouette of doom is uh, I I found it a really striking piece when I listened to because the Kill Bill albums obviously like all of Tarantino's films have a real mix of you know old old school pop tunes classical themes western themes all these kind of different things themes from different countries all that stuff so it's a real hodgepodge of an album but I loved this track a silhouette of doom because it really captures a sense of foreboding strangeness and escalating tension and I think it's if I remember rightly it's set to the point where it's just about to kick off with Bill in the final fight um I, I it's been a while since I've watched the film but I feel like it's around that point and I just think and I didn't know at first it was Morricone when I first watched the film and then when I went back and and I started to get more into Morricone's music and listen to it more I was like oh yeah of course but I think this is a great piece and um, but for the life of me I can't remember where it originates from you might know this sean because it's certainly not for kill bill volume two you know no i mean tarantino is a magpie and he alights on what he wants and he steals like various little bits and puts it puts it in and throws it together um, in the process often creating extraordinary soundtrack albums in fact one of the things to love one of the reasons why we ought to love tarantino is for bringing popular attention to the likes of these relatively obscure morricone tracks and others that's one of the reasons to admire him uh, i looked into this apparently this is from a film called navajo joe which is um a 1960s uh, spaghetti western uh, directed by uh, Sergio Corbucci. 
uh, starring Burt Reynolds as the as the eponymous Navajo Joe. So you have Burt Reynolds playing a Native oh, American okay. character, which is very very odd. Um, apparently, looking into it, um, Burt Reynolds was under the impression that he was going to be working with Sergio Leone. It's like, oh no, it's a different Sergio. <laughs> um, <laughs> apparently, that didn't work out quite as he expected. Uh, so, relatively obscure film. Trust trust that Tarantino would know about it because <laughs> yeah. of course Tarantino has got an encyclopedic knowledge of these things. Um, yeah, and there is a suite of music online, including Silhouette of Doom, from this score, and it's brilliant. It's really, it's really good. I suppose the Spaghetti Western scores for the Dollars trilogy were being composed around the same time, which I suppose were more melodic and elegiac. And then, of course, that builds in Once Upon a Time in the West, as you said, we talked about that on a previous episode, which people can go and seek out. This is more kind of um, kind of angular and punky and edgy and. I think I went back and looked up the um, the clip that this is used in. It's actually, it's the scene in, in the second film where Uma Thurman and Daryl Hannah are about to face, well, they're, they're, they're facing off at each other in the ah. um, trailer. And then that results in the, and then you find out that Daryl Hannah killed the Pi May character, Uma Thurman's mentor. And that results in them sort of locking swords. And then she, um, Uma Thurman plucks out Daryl Hannah's eye. Oh yeah. I remember that now. <laughs> um, so, you know, again, the, the music is so brilliantly used in the scene. You'd think that it had been organically created for that specific scene, but it hadn't. Obviously, you know, it originated decades before that. That's the, one of the reasons to like Tarantino is the way that he throws in these kind of things. I think it's, I think it's great. I hadn't listened to this track on its own before you suggested it i'm really glad that you included it one of the great pleasures about doing this particular podcast is that it in in preparation for it i went and looked up so many morricone scores that i hadn't heard this being one of them and i'm just like wow this this individual was really one of a kind i don't really know how someone can have such a bottomless well of inspiration how can someone think of throwing together so many different tonal styles instrumental choices and yet make it compelling and one of the great things about Morricone's music apart from possibly when he goes into really dissonant thriller territory because he did do scores like that that are quite difficult to listen to but for the most part his scores are very listenable uh, you can put them yeah, on and definitely. you can you're engaged with them aren't you like this yeah you absolutely are you know you can just even without the context you know we've spoken many times on this podcast about how some films you can't listen to without the score you, you've some scores you can't listen to without the film and that you need that there but and the best many of the best you don't need the context for what's happening on screen and definitely is the case with with uh with this you know with with this track and, and all the others you know they're just beautiful pieces of music you can just put on and this is different this one is as you say quite angular and experimental so it's not quite as easy to sort of throw on and listen to in as, as say the as say falls would be as we've previously mentioned but it's still it's still fascinating it's still really good and it shows some of the different things that he would do and some of the the variations he would play uh as you say so yeah it's i, I love it and, and it was you know i think I, I i actually feel like the score the soundtrack to kill bill volume two is better than the film so you know i i actually like love the kind of things that are in there so yeah it's a really good one your next one, Sean, you've gone for one that's maybe a bit more obscure. You know, thankfully, because you're more of a uh, a, a film music uh, encyclopedia and knowledge base, <laughs> you can pluck out in, in, in name many. Of... <laughs> <laughs> you can pluck out things from things that I haven't even heard of before, uh, which is great. And this is one of them. So it's from 
1997 British-Italian television drama miniseries called Nostromo, which uh, Morricone scores. It's uh, an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's epic story, Nostromo, of political upheaval, greed and romance in turn of the 20th century South America, starring a range of, uh, of actors from different nationalities, but more recognisable names would be Albert Finney, Colin Firth, um, uh, Joaquim Dalmedia, Brian Dennehy, people like that. So I'd never, I'd not heard of this, but the, the track you've gone for, The Silver of the Mine, is gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous piece. So was this one that you knew of previously for a long time, or did you discover it while you were discovering Morricone again? Uh, this, well, this, I've got this album on CD, and I have to say I've never seen the series. I think the series has fallen into obscurity. One of the great ironies of, of Morricone's career is that he scored so much stuff that the vast majority of the stuff that he did score has fallen into obscurity. And you won't, you know, very often you have to listen to the music without knowing what the context is, which is kind of a violation of, of the rule that I would normally adhere to, which is, OK, one needs to understand the film before one understands the music, but so powerful and so overwhelming is Morricone's music in general that one can actually listen to it and get a sense of what the context is without actually having seen the original film or TV series. So, and I think one of the one of the things that I wanted to do on this podcast was not I haven't selected any spaghetti western scores. I haven't select. I've tried not to select the scores for which Morricone is most famous because I think there is there is so much else going on elsewhere in his career and I think it balances out really really well with what you've picked we've got those two facets of his career the 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 stuff that you know and the stuff that perhaps people don't know uh and I I I very much went for the latter and yeah the silver of the mine I think might be the most extraordinary thing that Morricone composed and my god that's saying something given all the stuff we've already cited throughout the course of this podcast I mean it's every now and then you get a piece of music whether it's from Morricone or somebody else where you listen to it and it stops you in your tracks because it's so beautiful you just think my goodness me I don't know how someone can come up with something as beautiful as that I genuinely don't know where that came from and what I wouldn't give to get inside the mind of the person that came up with that. It's astonishing. Uh, again, I don't know the context of the series. I can imagine if it's called The Silver of the Mine, it involves some kind of colonial discovery based on the fact this is taken from the Joseph Conrad novel. There is a kind of yeah. awe of discovery. There is this awe of having stumbled on something of a quest having been reached. I would assume that is what that's the principle behind it. But again, you have the Edda del Orso soprano vocal, which alternates with the strings so what you have is the theme is introduced on the strings then it's thrown over to her voice then the the vocals and strings combine at the end of the track and it just proceeds to elevate in gorgeousness over five minutes just when you think it's peaked it keeps getting better and better and much of the rest of the score is like that there are given the nature of the story there are very very dark angry pieces Morricone was an experimentalist as he said and not all of Morricone's music was lush and sweeping there's some very very uncomfortable textures that he was very very good at coming up with but for the most part this is a score that appears to be a glow with the joy of discovery and I'm just I'm just astonished that someone can come up with something like this I think it's incredible. Yeah, really beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And I, I'd, I've heard of the the story Nostromo. I haven't read it, admittedly, but I've heard of it. And uh, 
You know, when I when when I hear the word Nostromo, I immediately think of Alien. You know, because mm. that's where they got the the name of the ship from in in Alien. But so I'd, I'd not seen this, and I'd not I'd, I didn't know it existed to be honest. But I think the yeah, the, the score is, is is gorgeous, and you know this this isn't the first example of Morricone scoring for something for television. Uh, the last example, I should say, of Morricone scoring something for television that we'll get to in this list. But yeah sumptuous absolutely gorgeous I suppose piece of work. The, only, the only other thing i wanted to bring up was it actually the the show also has a role for claudia cardinale who was in once upon a time in the west ah uh, okay for, for whom morricone scored jill's theme again with edda del orso's voice which is one of the most soaringly beautiful bits of film he's ever so there is there is a connection there as well and as you say i think we, i think we talked about that specific thing with claudia cardinale in our, in our last episode so that's something to uh, go and seek out in the next one, you have summed it up where you say that I've picked the more well-known Morricone and you've gone for the more deep dive stuff, which is great. And the next one is probably one of his most famous, Deborah's Theme from Once Upon a Time in America, which was Sergio Leone's last movie, mid-80s, an epic story about um, two brothers in New York City rising to prominence um, amongst the ghetto and just a stunning, stunning score, which... Um, has just gone down in 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 history, you know, as being absolutely beautiful. And Deborah's theme is probably one of the most signature pieces that that was that he, that he ever did in many ways. Although it was it was, and I don't know the actual film, but it was apparently written in the mid nineteen seventies for another movie, but was rejected. Deborah's theme, uh, and then Morricone had it, gave it to Leone, who wasn't sure to put it in because it was similar to the main title music for Once Upon a Time in the West, but he did. And then, you know, history was made because it's it's beautiful. It's an absolutely gorgeous piece of music for a, a fantastic album. It's it's so famous, isn't it? Again, one of those um, Morricone tracks, you'd only have to play a few seconds of it and you would know that it was Morricone and you'd probably know what the track was as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's another one of those really famous bits of film film music that turned up on countless compilation albums and chill out albums and it's it's heartbreaking it's a really heartbreaking theme and those who've seen the film will know why and again the use of Edda Del Orso's um, soprano vocal done in a very quiet mournful way as opposed to the soaring majesty of something like the good the bad and the ugly and nostroma it's on a very very low register in, in this in this score i was listening to this score in its entirety just prior to um recording this podcast and i hadn't listened to it all the way through in, in a while i've got it on on cd and i was blown away by the variety of styles that are in it i was really struck by that and i've mentioned this already how morricone saw himself as an experimentalist and the way that this particular score it's almost like a a kaleidoscope you have various different styles and emotions all circling around each other so you go from the going the the film is it's a story about memory so robert de niro robert de niro's character is you know is remembering his youth and he obviously co-stars in the film with james wood so the idea is the movie is a journey into the past and it's a journey about regrets and unfulfilled um issues and obviously opium induced memory that's really important the, the, the film begins and ends in an opium den and there are what the score does is it moves from it's almost, the, the score has got a kind of wistful air. It's almost like the score attains the sense of a memory being dredged up from the past, 
and it does this through the orchestrations and the harmonics and you go from this wistful piano theme to the long line tragedy of Deborah's theme to prohibition era jazz I think the jazz that the, the really acutely observed jazz numbers are really well done and really well researched and very authentic so you go from that it, and then and then all of this stuff kind of glides around the, the the score attains the fluidity of memory and that's really hard to do uh, it, it does it in a way that isn't haphazard or bitty or all over the place the score flows beautifully well it's just it's just a really remarkable piece of work I and mean, it's it's a shame because i looked into the history of the film apparently there was there was a european cut of the film and then there was a butchered american theatrical cut of the movie that was met with very very negative reviews and it's a shame that that had to happen to Sergio Leone at the very end of his career. Uh, and it's a shame that it had to happen in his final collaboration with Morricone. But the, the music and ultimately the film, the film has been reassessed, is so majestic that it's it's transcended the troubled production of the film. And it's it's one of those Morricone scores that's really broken out with people and deservedly so. I mean, I was listening to the, 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 the end, the album ends with a 13 minute suite of just variations on all the different themes and i'm just absolutely i'm absolutely blown away how how can one man have so much inspiration within him how can you find so many variations on themes step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus and um, where do you come up with those themes in the first place? I mean, it's just, just jaw-dropping. Especially considering that because the film took so long as well, he didn't finish composing most of it before actual scenes had been filmed and he was playing pieces on set as filming took place, um, which had happened in Once Upon a Time in the West. And just, you think that, you know, he was he was playing music, he was record, you know composing music for... The, without the context but it fits so brilliantly i mean it, again it just it, he's so in tune i think he's one of those composers that's so in tune with what he's doing that it, it doesn't it doesn't matter you know I mean, it's 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 just amazing to behold i mean i suppose one of the things to say about morricone is he was a very very singular character he never learned english he never left rome although he obviously worked extensively in in hollywood he never left rome he was always based in rome he was a very very singular character and i think sometimes the there that like you're right there was there was a tendency to write music based on the script without seeing the the the, the rushes without seeing the rough cut and i think that obviously worked with sergio leone because sergio leone had an operatic sensibility and the music would mold that you know the, the visuals would be molded to the music which is relatively unusual in terms of film music composition i think sometimes that didn't work with morricone there's there's famously um people can go and uh, there are there are two um music journalists that i know we both admire um james southall and john broxton of uh, um moviewave.net and moviemusicuk.us respectively anyone who is even remotely interested in morricone go and look up the reviews that these 
two people have done because there's there's a vast repository of reviews really well considered analysis on Morricone's music and one of the famous examples of a Morricone project that didn't work out was apparently he um he wrote the initial score for what dreams may come the Robin Williams film uh for Vincent Ward and apparently that didn't work it was too liturgical it was too ecclesiastical too heavy maybe too oppressive for the film and they ended up threw that out and they got Michael Kamen in to write something that was melodic but maybe relatively more accessible so it didn't always work and I think there was maybe sometimes Morrick and so so just so we don't turn this into a hagiography I think maybe there might have occasionally on the part of Morricone being a tendency to score based on impressions in the script rather than seeing the visuals. I think that's what happened with John Carpenter's remake of The Thing, which I'd consider to be one of the great horror films of all time. Apparently what Morricone did was he wrote slabs of creepy experimental music that he then presented to John Carpenter. And then John Carpenter famously ended up throwing a lot of that out and there's one particular track, The Humanity Part 2, I think, with that pulsating electronic heartbeat, which is just so chilling, which ended up being repeated more in, in the score than Morricone had intended. And then Carpenter himself bulked that up with these kind of impressionistic electronic textures. So that was a bit of a messy bit of a messy situation where maybe the communication between the director and composer wasn't quite there as it would have been with Leone. But I'm so glad you picked Once Upon a Time in America because I'm... It was, it was a joy to go back and listen to that again. It's it's just it's a masterpiece. I was gonna I was gonna bring the thing up actually as a good example of that. Like you were you were just talking about, and I suppose you know John Carpenter's got a bit of stick for that over the years. I think for not actually you know going with the the master for this, but it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you've got to you've got to make the right choice for your film, and I think most people would agree that that you know some of the music for the thing is fantastic. You know, particularly what what he brings to that, and. You know, there's there are people out there who would say that Morricone's score would probably have been better. You know, and that's depends on your point of view, really. I think, but you know, it's it's got to be even with a master, it's got to be right for the movie. And I think, you know, ninety nine percent of the time, I think it it was. You know, he brought something to to a film that elevates the whole thing. But yeah, I think it's it in some cases it's maybe unfair to pillory a, a, a director for maybe having the i mean good good on john carpenter for having the you know this the strength to say no i don't think this works you know for somebody by that point who was already well established an iconic film composer i kind of admire the choice to actually go well maybe this isn't quite what i want as opposed to just going for it and, and you know accepting it and you know that that that's it's like i say it's got to be the right combination <laughs> That there are, I mean, if you listen to the thing score in isolation, uh, there are tracks in on the album that are clearly too, they're too big and they're too grandiose for the movie. The great thing about the movie is how claustrophobic it is and how limited in its environment and how limited in it, in the number of characters that it is. I think the, the, I think the music would have overtaken the movie. Some tracks on that album that yeah. weren't used would have overtaken the movie and that would have been to the detriment of the movie again. This is where communication between director and composer is very, very important. (laughs) It's obviously made made, um, quite quite tricky by the fact that Morricone, again, deliberately didn't learn to speak English and deliberately deliberately didn't leave Rome. So there was maybe that kind of communication issue with with certain directors. Obviously, he worked with many, many Hollywood directors and didn't have any problem with them at all, like Brian De Palma, for instance. We'll get to that. But yeah, I think think Carpenter made the right decision in that instance. It's one of those cases where, yeah, I'm I'm on the side of the director. The Morricone tracks that he did use in the thing are devastatingly effective really the 
the autopsy scene where they first they bring it back from the Norwegian camp and they unfurl it and you've got those icy spine pricklingly creepy strings as the camera tracks along the table and you're looking at this thing the the, the iciness again that's the word I, the iciness of the score in that particular is really well done that 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 is the tone i think that morricone should have it's it's the tone that he largely did strive for throughout the thing. But there there are certain tracks that I think are maybe a bit too bombastic for their own good. I think I think a collaboration that did seem to pay dividends a bit more is your next one, Sean, which is for with Terence Malick for Days of Heaven, the nineteen seventy eight uh, period drama romance starring Richard Gere, Brooke Adams, uh, set in nineteen sixteen, who are about uh, two lovers uh, harvesting crops in the Texas panhandle for a wealthy farmer. And it's uh, and they end up tricking him into a, a false marriage to try and claim his fortune. And it, it's a it's a film that I, I, I've seen it. I saw it last year, I think I watched Days of Heaven, actually. And um, this was his second, Malik's second film after Badlands. I, I, I don't know if it was then he had his 20-year break and then did the thin red line. Yeah, it was. It yeah, yeah. It was a 20-year gap of this, yeah. Yeah, and obviously Terence Malick is well known for being quite difficult himself. And Morricone, Morricone's score is lovely for this. And he said about working with um, with Malick, he was quite demanding. He didn't know me very well, so he made suggestions and in some cases gave musical solutions. This kind of annoyed me because he'd say, this thing, try it with three three flutes. Something impossible. So to humour him, I would do it with three flutes and then he'd decide to use my version after all. His was impossible or I would have written it myself. And more nitpicking like that, which means he was very attentive and careful about music. So that sounds a little bit like a collaboration that worked, even though it was quite, at times, prickly. And maybe Malik wanted things that Morricone knew wouldn't quite fit. But it came out, in the end, to be something quite beautiful. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, just, it's a ravishingly um, beautiful piece of work. Yeah, so obviously with Terence Malick's films are... One would imagine they are tailor-made for film composers because they are visually driven. The famous thing about Days of Heaven is that it's shot at the at the golden hour, where you get that beautiful glow from the from the cinematography. It's it's a it's a it's a stunningly beautiful film to look at, and clearly Terence Malick's films have got more kind of impressionistic and fragmented. I mean, you'll always know. If it's a, if it's a Terence Malick film, when you know you you start with a shot of rustling grass, it's like I love being outside or something like that, and you kind of like, like, you're, you're kinda like <laughs> yeah. eh? And it's like so <laughs> being outside, I'm in touch with a higher power, and you're like, what? Speak up a bit, and like that, and that's the kind of frustrating thing about Terence Malick's films. But I think Days of Heaven is one of his better in in in, in relative terms. It's one of his more relatively narrative driven films. Morricone's score is really, really stunning. It, it's interesting that it sits alongside the um, Saint-Saëns uh, Carnival of the Animals, a very, very famous piece of classical music. I'm sure everyone will have heard that, which actually opens the film. So it's 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 being compelled to sit alongside that. I can only assume that was a Malick decision, right? I'm going to have Saint-Saëns in there. You are, you know, that's not moving. That's staying over the opening sequence. Morricone, you're going to have to put your own music alongside that and the two things are going to kind of coexist. But it works really well. And the main theme, the harvest, is just one of the most devastatingly gorgeous themes I think Morricone came up with. It's that 
it's pastoral. Again, it's, it's interesting. I hadn't heard that quote before that you said about the use of the flutes. I mean, the flutes are placed in in sound mix along with these very elegiac, very steady strings, and it's 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 lovely. But there's there's a sense of darkness and melancholy underneath it as well. It's quite a wise score. It recognises that I think that beauty comes with an underlying cost which is very very appropriate for those who've who've seen the film anyone will know that that's very appropriate because there is the the onset of mechanization and there is also a, a fire sequence which is kind of kind of very shattering and very upsetting and Morricone's score generally darkens as it goes on and you get as the mechanization takes hold the orchestration changes you get more like low register piano and dissonant strings which is not probably more akin to what Jerry Goldsmith might have done as well but sitting alongside those darker pieces are just some of the most shimmeringly lovely things that Morricone came up with. There's a track called Happiness, which is led by the flute. And you just think, like with like with all the other scores we've talked about in this podcast, I don't know how someone can come up with something as, as lovely as that. I, I genuinely don't know where they find the melodic inspiration. That that scene is actually online, the happiness scene. And you can hear how well mixed the score is in the um in the movie i mean the score is it's it, the movie is a very it's narration driven i believe it's linda mance i believe is is the main character who narrates a lot of the a lot of the movie and clearly that would present a challenge for any composer to come up with music that would not compete with the voiceover but would sit alongside it and sort of draw out the deeper themes of the story and i think morricone judged it perfectly and I believe this was the first score for which he was Oscar nominated, which is remarkable yeah. given <laughs> given what he'd come up with before. Like, Crazy, isn't it? Really, yeah, <laughs> like that that's yeah. that that's it. You know, this is this is the first one. I mean, I, I, I don't. He didn't win, obviously. I can't. I don't. And I don't know off the top of my that, head who that would he was have been. Uh, Giorgio Moroder for Midnight Express. I've just looked it up, uh, which is ah, kind of now, so for goodness' sake. I mean, like that year you had John Williams with Superman, Jerry Goldsmith with Boys from Brazil, and any with this and they give it to Giorgio Moroder for Midnight Express I mean, we talked about this <laughs> we, we talked about this before I, I think it last in our last C- series of podcasts last year I think this came up when we were talking about maybe it was Jerry Goldsmith actually or at some point we've discussed this yeah and we were like what <laughs> how did this happen <laughs> yeah. another you know Oscar you know uh, robbed situation really uh, but yeah it's a fantastic fantastic score absolutely beautiful my Next one then is going back to the spaghetti western. Going back to Sergio Leone, you know, there's a common theme with a lot of my scores here because they go back to the uh, the Leone films, the collaborations. This one for probably one of Leone's lesser known films, actually, and one that I saw fairly recently, which I thought was bonkers but great, which was <laughs> <laughs> Doc. Well, a fistful of dynamite, also known as Doc, you sucker, which is. One of the best titles ever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> love yeah. that. It's a uh, Zapata Western film starring Rod Steiger in you know in in, in full Rod Steiger mode. You know, <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say uh, Rod, Rod. I played the Mad Priest in the Amityville Horror Steiger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. do you remember that when he? I want to shout all the way. <laughs> do you remember? I want to he... shout through every film. Oh my lord! <laughs> do you remember the bit when he when he's in the house and he's he's covered in all the flies and he just wants to look? He, this one looks like he wants to lie down and have a nap. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. Rod Steiger's great. In most films he's in, he's just, yeah, he's great. And he's he's fun in this because he plays, I mean, in this, really, it's racially 
dodgy casting because he plays a Mexican guy and it should have really been a Mexican actor and if it was made today it would be so but he's but he's all this kind of you know grouchy Mexican kind of thing going on and, yeah. and even though yeah culturally it's a bit wobbly it's very fun to watch and alongside James Coburn as this quite suave um, Irish ex Republican Army revolutionary and like and it's it's about those two and it's it's a kind of it's almost like a, a, a weird twisted sort of love story almost in a way in, in the middle of like a revolution and it's a bizarre and we're involving like a heist and a bank robbery it's a bizarre film one i actually really liked and and it's <laughs> and it's got some fascinating stuff in the background of how it was developed and all this kind of thing but the music is 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 really good it's it's i wouldn't say it's necessarily as good as the, the dollars trilogy music but there are some fantastic things you know particularly the the main uh track for this which has some stunning uh it's a stunning mixture of traditional kind of you know guitars and and all, all and and flavors alongside you know the mexican aspect but it's got this uh, well it's very fitting sean because it has a particular <laughs> melody in it that, we've joked about this before that ends up going Sean 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 which is how really we should start this podcast every week with me going can, can, we, can we just have that as the intro music <laughs> maybe maybe but it's it, it's set to this really sort of strange and beautiful sort of flashback sequence or sort of uh, vision sequence of James Coburn copping off with this woman in a garden in Ireland which you know this this sort of beautiful utopian version of Ireland in like 1910 <laughs> yeah. with like you know misty kind of visuals and all this kind of, it, it's it, it's it's a good one it's fascinating and and I think it's one of the films and maybe one of the scores that's maybe a little bit overlooked yeah well, certainly I haven't seen the film and I hadn't heard the score at all apart from the main theme before I started to prepare for this podcast and it's definitely Morricone on much more playful eccentric form I mean mm. most of his western scores if not all of them were eccentric but this one particularly so again yeah the use of the uh Sean Sean like that is just I mean, <laughs> no other composer would have done that and no and, no, and, and, no. and it, 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 it's presented in, in a decidedly non-ironic fashion no other composer would have been audacious enough to actually have a choir sing the name of the main character it's it's really remarkable but the the way that that the uh, I've t- I've talked about this the use of alternating rhythmic styles and harmonics to go from c- sort of whistling to the Sean Sean vocals to the kind of clip clop piano to the pipe organ and then back again you almost come like full circle it's it's really charming and I don't know if any other composer could have made this as charming as Morricone did and it absolutely coheres. It, it it coheres brilliantly. It I haven't seen the film, but I I felt listening to the score on its own that it communicated the narrative of the film brilliantly. Particularly that, that I mean I I'm I'm divining from the music that there is a real sense of melancholy and sadness in the James Coburn character. Right, that's the impression yeah. I got. He's he's sort of wistful for the world he used to inhabit basically yeah and and there, there there is a scene that i looked up online where i believe it's probably the scene where rod steiger and james coburn meet for the first time james coburn gets off a bike and walks towards him and takes the goggles off and you have the the, the cl- classic morricone uh, the percussion kind of woodwind vocal arrangements which strike a decidedly whimsical 
No, and there's there's a badass line that James Coburn says because he's got nitroglycerin with him and he knows they won't shoot him, and he demonstrates a little drop of this. He's like, if you know, if you what he says, if you shoot me, you'll have to redraw maps of this entire area (laughs) because the explosion is (laughs) something like that. Yeah, (laughs) it's amazing. I'm I'm paraphrasing there, but you know, based on the isolated scenes that I've watched, Morricone's score is magnificently well tailored to the to the movie. But then, of of course, you would expect that he's working in the in the western spaghetti western realm yeah i thought it was just mesmerizing and it's a shame that it's not as well known as 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 the as the other spaghetti westerns i looked into the history of the film apparently a fistful of dynamite was the re-edited american cut of the movie yeah. uh, and apparently it was treated quite badly by the distributors i can only assume that is why people don't cite this as readily as they would the good the bad and the ugly or once upon a time in the west but it's really experimental really weird and yet oddly hypnotic and again charming as i said i, I love it I, I and to be honest i think you could describe the film in similar terms actually as a movie and it's, it's not it's not as good as the dollars trilogy and i think that's one of the reasons it, or, or necessarily once upon a time in america and i think that's one of the reasons it's lesser known but uh it, it is it is different and it, it's it's fascinating there's a really good release of it i think it's arrow who, who put it out last year with some fa- fantastic detail on this uh, and some some really interesting interviews and things like that with with uh, with people, which goes into a lot of detail. So I'd encourage anyone to get that. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's great. It's really good. We're going to do two of yours on the bounce, so we can finish on uh, my last one to, to bookend the podcast. So you, your next one is from another TV show. The main theme from uh, Padre Pio. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about obscure Ennio Morricone projects. I don't know anything about this apart from the general synopsis, which is that it's based on the life of Roman Catholic friar and saint uh, Padre Pio, directed by Franco Bernini, uh, starring uh, Michel Placido. Uh, I don't know anything about it apart from that. It's probably never been shown in the UK. It's probably never been shown outside Italy, I would imagine. Um, as you said, released in uh, 2000. I came across Morricone's main theme for this some years ago now. And again, it, it just stopped me in my tracks. I was like, wow, you, you can uh, you can genuinely tell when Morricone is inspired by something because that standard of excellence is kind of taken to the next level. And when Morricone's excellence is taken to the next level, boy, does it stop you and boy, do you take notice of it. Clearly, the themes of of the of the story it's sort of based on a true story so it's um it's it's a, it's a roman catholic friar it's an italian production it's obviously a very very personal project for morricone to take on one would imagine and therefore as always with film composers if they feel the material in their bones the music is going to be more extraordinary than it otherwise would have been and the the use of the the, the, the trumpets and the choir and the timpani in the main theme which is then threaded throughout the rest of the score just strikes a, a heavenly ecclesiastical note that only Morricone could have done and again it doesn't it, you know I'm not listening to it thinking well this melody sounds like the mission or once upon a time in the west or or whatever I don't think that I just think this is a, a stunningly beautiful original theme tailor-made for this particular production it sounds like morricone but morricone isn't ripping himself off i'm i'm listening to it thinking i don't know how someone can compose something as majestic as this it's really 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 quite remarkable and um as i've said 
one of the ironies of Morricone's career is that we people might not even see the production which the music accompanies, but it kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> um, yeah, we've got the music, yeah. and 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 that's it. You you really don't need it, and and that again is a testament to Morricone, as we've said. And I I, mean, I, I suppose this, I suppose it would form something of a companion in a way to the mission in some sense in that they're both revolving around the the you know the catholic religious narratives you know different kinds of stories but essentially still reaching for that heavenly aspect i guess and that idea of 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 religion and and catholicism which is you know i i think not every composer would lean towards i think you know and depending on your religious denomination and things like this but it does give you the chance to sort of have some of these sweeping, beautiful melodies, you know, to be able to... I mean, ultimately, this, this is this is the story of, of a guy who was canonised. You know, he, he became a saint in in the end because he, he died in 1968. And then he was subsequently... Cause he, and he, for, for the fact he had stigmata all, all his life, he was subsequently canonised by the Vatican. So, you know, you, you're, you're reaching to, to lofty heights here in terms of what you can do with music. And I think he does a great job. Lofty lofty is exactly the word, yeah. You do, you do genuinely get a sense that the score is yearning and reaching for something beyond the kind of material realm, which morricone did that magnificently i think yeah to, to compare it to the mission you're absolutely right tonally it's 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 very similar to the mission uh, and this is for a t- this for a tv production <laughs> it's like you know you think most yeah. most compose you know most directors would be happy to have this in a film in a feature film this was for television uh, that that's that's how remarkable morricone was i suppose he went he picked the project that he thought he could do the most with and that's great in that he was able to cross over between tv and cinema you know, and did, didn't worry about doing that. I mean, this was 2000, so this is where he's, you know, well established by this point. So, yeah, fascinating stuff. Even if I never see, and I never probably will see the film, <laughs> if we got the film, yeah. the music to enjoy. The, the, your last one is a real outlier, I think, in terms of the kind of film that he would normally score, because you've gone for Casualties of War, which is a, a, a war film from American War Film, 1989. Probably a, a lesser known project for a lot of the people involved. Michael J. Fox, Sean Penn, directed by Brian De Palma, about uh, an incident during the Vietnam War in 1966, in which a Vietnamese woman was kidnapped from a village by a squad of American soldiers who raped and murdered her. So this is really dark stuff. I mean, what what was the, and it's I mean it's it's a really fa- fantastic piece of music. But what was the thought process behind behind Morricone doing this? I mean, I can only assume it's because he worked with De Palma before on the Untouchables, which was a very famous score that we we could have included that on here. Yeah. Well, neither, yeah. neither of us included it in the end, but yeah, I and the Untouchables is one of the most famous Hollywood. Um, uh, scores composed by Morricone. I think De Palma, Brian De Palma, is famously indulges composers. Brian De Palma can elicit normally fantastic music from his composers, and many many examples of this. You think of, um, for example, Pino Donaggio with with Carrie. He's got a very very good. Although Brian De Palma is often derided as as kind of like an, an empty visual stylist, he understands music and he understands how to use music. Uh, you think of Danny Elfman's music on Mission Impossible as well, which apparently re- um, replaced an original score from Alan Silvestri. So he and Morricone were clearly excellent collaborators. After this, there would be, I believe, an 11-year gap until Mission to Mars, which was a very, very controversial Morricone De Palma score. Um, the film didn't do very well either. I but- love that one as well, I have to say. The- I love that. I'd forgotten about that, actually, that they can... 
that I didn't love the film, but the music to Mission to Mars is gorgeous. There's one scene I believe I haven't seen the film for years where I believe they're in, they're on a spaceship and the hull's breached, and there is this kind of repetitive organ arrangement, which again is one of the, those wildly eccentric Morricone tracks. Apparently, just as many people hated that as they did love it, and it's just it's so odd. Like no one but Morricone would have thought of that. But in terms of casualties of war, it's a, it's a very, as, as one would expect from the subject matter, very, very disturbing film. Sort of one of the most disturbing and uncomfortable, uh, hard to watch war films ever. I chose this because I saw Morricone live in December 2006 at what was then the Hammersmith Apollo. It's one of the most profound, transcendent musical experiences that I've ever been. So I love seeing live music. There is nothing quite like seeing an orchestra playing live, let alone one that is being personally conducted by Ennio Morricone himself. It's incredibly, yeah, yeah, astonishing experience. And he played this and I don't think I'd heard it before then. And I came away thinking, wow, what was that? And I looked in the programme to see what it was. And the sense of, anguished tormented sadness and sorrow in the main theme is really quite remarkable because it's not just an elegy for what happened to vietnam it's an elegy for the corruption that obviously happened to all the soldiers the fact the dehumanizing effects of war that is quite clearly what morricone is feeding off and he works hand in hand with de palma to deliver that and the main theme is just one of the most moving bits of music that he ever came up with and it, it is it is an elegy to the tragedy of Vietnam, the tragedy felt by both, uh, you know, the the inhabitants of Vietnam itself, and also the 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 American soldiers. The fact they were you know they were sent in there and they had their humanity systematically wiped out of them, and the the way that Morricone, it's a very dark score, uh, maybe not one of his most accessible scores. The way that that main theme is deconstructed and threaded you get bits of it throughout the remainder of the score. You get the concert presentation of it, which is the most famous bit, but then you get bits of it, a tease throughout the remainder of the score to depict the horror of what is going on and the the tragedy of, of what's going on. I mean, Morricone was very often, he was a kind of themes and variations composer. What I mean by that is certain certain film scores have a multitude of themes in them certain other film scores have one theme that is then kind of presented in full and then broken down fragmented turned inside out this is very much one of those scores it's a challenging score because the film is a very very challenging watch i mean the performances by michael j fox and sean penn are extraordinary um it's probably might be brian de palma's best film certainly his most socially significant film and the i won't give away the context of the ending but the final sequence where the main theme comes soaring back in to lead us into the end credits is just kind of like you're just left reeling at how well the music works in terms of getting beneath the fabric of the visuals and doing what Jerry Goldsmith did, which you don't score the visuals, you score the emotional truth of the characters. And it works magnificently well in this. Yeah, I, I want to go, I want to catch that. I'd not heard of the film actually, um, funnily enough. It, it wasn't one that was on my radar, so it's definitely made me want to go and. And watch it now, and 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 see the the the, the music in, listen to the music in context because it's a fantastic piece. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Let's finish though with a return to the good, the bad, and the ugly. For what I, I said at the top is, I think my favourite piece of Morricone music, and that's the Ecstasy of Gold from uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which fi- which fi- figures in like the 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 ultimate climax of the film, the three way Mexican standoff. This kicks it off. It's followed by the triple duel 
and then uh, comes to a head in the, the with the trio at the end, which, which sort of finishes it off. I think sort of at the end ends the film. I, th- I think like this is a fantastic piece of music. I just I, I every time I listen to this, I just get so much out of it. And I mean, it, it's it, as you say, it's got the uh, uh, vocals by Edadil also as well. One of his well, most well known themes. And it's, it's appeared so often, you know. I mean, uh, ever ever since 1983, Metallica have used it as the introductory music for their concerts, "The Ecstasy of Gold," which is called. It's on many, it's on several of their albums. Um, it's been used by the Ramones for their concerts since 1991. It's been used by people like Yo-Yo Ma, Jay Z. Uh, <laughs> it's featured in films like the Rocky Horror Show, The Book of Life. You know, all, all all kinds of things that's been on The Simpsons. You know, it's everywhere. It's it's one of those great pieces of music, and I I just think it's so rousing and thrilling and hummable and it and enjoyable outside of the actual brilliance of its feet pit position in the film. I think maybe it's not necessarily the most beautiful thing that Morricone's ever done, but I think it's one of the most skillful and. Uh, it, it basically, if somebody said to me, "What, what, tr- what track would you, you would you say to somebody? Oh, I, I, I should, will I like any Morricone? What track? I would give them the Ecstasy of Gold and say, if you like this and you like film music, then you will love everything else he's done." Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd say it's easily one of the most beautiful things he'd ever done. It's 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 a really really um, genre defying, pioneering piece of music. Once again, it's up there with the classical staples. It's up there with, you know, you think of um, Handel, like Zadok the Priest, we mentioned that a couple of weeks ago in mm, reference to the Man's mm. King George. It's up there in terms of how famous it is and in terms of its just overall pop culture significance. I mean, you, you, you summed it up beautifully there. And the fact that the likes of the Ramones and Metallica are wise enough to recognise its significance that they that they've, that they've use it. It's just I don't I can't think of a, of a, of, a, of an example of a film composer with the possible exception of Hans Zimmer I can't think of a film composer who has crossed over into that crowd pleasing more mainstream area and I think it's one of the many reasons to like Metallica is that they obviously recognise the quality of the music I think good for them frankly it's it's brilliant that they that they recognise the significance of this particular track and I think I suppose. I mean, one could say, along with the main theme from The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, this was probably the track that announced Morricone's arrival in Hollywood. I just, I mean, he had done, obviously he had done the two prior Western scores, but this piece of music, The Exit of Gold, just takes it to the next level. It's, I don't think anyone had heard music like this before. Certainly no one here had heard music like this before in a Western. Definitely not. It's, it brought that Italian operatic sensibility to a global audience who maybe weren't aware of it or who weren't interested in it. And it found exactly the right context to, to showcase such an approach. Credit Sergio Leone for this as well. As we've, as I've said repeatedly, we've both said it, uh, the success of a, of a film score, a good film score owes just as much to the director. It owes a lot to the conversation between the director and the composer. Clearly these two were friends. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were clearly on the same page. And the, the, what the music does, that what this particular piece of music does, is it takes 
a very rudimentary scene of Eli Wallach basically running through a graveyard. I mean, there's not a lot going on in 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 the scene. It's the it's the music that makes it, isn't it? It's the music that that does it. And as the camera whirls around to visually signify the ecstasy, it's the score that makes you feel it because on its own terms. The scene as it plays out is quite crude and in in the context of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, probably quite unremarkable. But the score makes you see more than what you're seeing, if you if you kind of know what I mean. Mm. It's just, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a cliche, it's a God-given gift, it really is. I, I don't know how anyone can come up with, with music like this. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. I mean, cinema... After composing this, cinema was never the same again. That's how good Morricone was. I think you've summed that up brilliantly there, actually. It's a great way to close this off, really. A God-given gift that changed cinema forever for the better and provided some of the most beautiful music ever, ever made. So we can only thank him for everything he gave to the world in terms of in terms of music and the legacy that he will leave and the amount of wonderful music that is out there waiting to be listened to, waiting to be discovered by future generations of film music fans and to be uh, loved, hopefully, for the for the rest of time. So it's it's amazing. I mean, what I want to echo, yeah, I want to echo what um, Hans Zimmer himself said. Hans Zimmer did a very moving uh, BBC tribute that people can look up online. Hans Zimmer was hugely influenced by Ennio Morricone. He was a huge fan. And he's... he's um, done some lovely words he basically said that with with such a legacy of of music like this uh the artist never really leaves us the the artist is still alive in spirit because the the, the magnitude of the work is so vast and so profound that although the the, the morricone is no longer with us in person he is still with us in spirit and you know that an artist has reset the boundaries of what's possible when you can say that about someone. You can't say that about many people, but Morricone is definitely one of them. Yeah, there'll only be a handful of people. I think similar sentiments will be said about John Williams yeah. when he passes away eventually. But yeah, you're right. I think, yeah, it's very, very few people you can say that about. So yeah, amazing, amazing. And it's been it's been really delightful to listen to many of these tracks and these albums recently and it won't be the last time we do and, and it won't be the last time Morricone appears on this podcast almost certainly as we go through and we look back at stuff um so yeah it's uh long mate long mate continue really but um this wasn't the only one you did this week as well was it a tribute you did one on your other podcast frame to frame is that right yeah with my friend good friend Andy, Andy Williams yeah yeah we talked about um Morricone because every now and then you hear about the death of someone in popular culture and it kind of knocks you back on your heels a little bit and you think no that's not that's not the news i wanted to hear and you know it's not often i would do two podcasts on the same person within the course of one week but marikoni was not an ordinary individual i'm sure i'm speaking for you as well when i say that he imprinted on me from a very very young age even before I got into film music properly, even before I saw him live, even before I had an appreciation of the films that the music appeared in, he is kind of in. He is kind of in my mind. His music is in my mind, and yeah, that's what that's what he means to me. He was a a, a towering individual. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's. I, I would encourage anyone to go and listen to frame to frame which is also on the we made this podcast network um that we're on and uh, give that a listen as well uh, because it's great but um 
Just remember that we'll have a Spotify playlist to go alongside this that we'll put on social media and in the show notes as well with all these tracks that you can go listen to. I think all of them are on Spotify this time, which is great. So you can listen to them all in one go, um, which is lovely. And then we'd encourage you to expand and go listen to many of the albums and and things like that uh, around that. And not all of them are completely on on Spotify, I think. I think then you've got to go and sort of farm off to YouTube and things like that to find everything. But it's all out there. It will all be out there. So yeah, absolutely go and do that. And uh, I think it'd be well worth your time. But uh, we'll be back... Uh, next week, I think for our probably our, our planned one this week, which was the uh, the high school movie score, so it will be quite upbeat. We've got some fun stuff, haven't we, Sean? For that, a nice mixture of actual music as well as uh, actual like pop music and things like that, as well as classical film stuff. Yeah, we're shaking up. Let, let's face it, we 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 need cheering up. <laughs> we we need something. Yeah. <laughs> we, we need we, we need do. something upbeat. We need a bit of rock and roll. We need something that's, that's got it's got a, that's got some some rhythm and some some funkiness yeah. to it. Yeah, looking forward to that one. It's going to be good. It's going to be different. So, yeah, that'll be great. And uh but yeah, thank you for joining us for uh, this rather sad episode of uh, Between the Notes, but um we hope that you've got something from it and you will help you remember um the maestro Ennio Morricone but we're part as I say of the we made this podcast network and it's not all we're talking about uh this week so we'll give you a taste of what you might have missed in a moment um but until then we hope you continue to enjoy the music we've discussed um that you're all staying safe and well and we will see you next time as we discuss more music of film between the notes elsewhere on we made this we played this I had Pokemon Blue back in the day and I think that was probably one of the very first games that I sort of technically completed and when I say completed I don't mean like I definitely did not get an 151 Pokedex or anything like that but getting to the Elite Four and then doing the end game bits um, and to be fair I remember this as being the very first game that I ever bought an instruction guide for Ah, okay, yeah, because uh, they were all the rage, weren't they? Yeah, the strategy like guide. Yeah, I yeah. I had one, an unofficial one, that I bought from um, WH Smiths as a kid. Don't say the C word. I like memorabilia that has a story to it, that has a, a relationship. I think that's why Funko Pops are so popular, because of the nostalgia factor. I think it's a little tangible bit of something very important in someone's history. I think Funko Pops are hideous. I love them. Of course you do. I've got I've got a full Back to the Future collection. Of course you have. <laughs> I've got nearly the full A-Team collection apart from the van. And I've got an Andre the Giant that's just a little bit bigger than the other ones, which is lovely. I mean, I get it. And I like stuff like that when they do that. That That is cool. Shipwrecked and Comatose, a Red Dwarf podcast. Which one do you think the heroine did? From the way you've worded it, I would say the former. Yes, and this is what young women, you're like teenage girls, are being influenced by, and it's not good. Oh, I really like your newborn daughter. I'm going to marry her in 18 years. Oh, yes. Which is, which is, something, that, which is something that happened in the book as well. Yeah. Allegedly. Oh, yes. Yes, it does. Anyway, what's the worst book of all time, boys? Oh, right, I'm well. well. And why is it Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey? Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network.
the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening. Thank you.